Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Sunday evening here, December the 4th. Um, <laughs> been quite a while, you know, busy holiday season, but you've done some some globe trotting here. Uh, how are you doing? What are we talking about this week? Yeah, I was over in Japan for a week or so, which was a real treat. I, I had said that, so I was in Tokyo for for the week, and... While Japan wasn't necessarily like top of my list of places I had wanted to go, now that I've been, I would love to go back. I, it was a tremendous city, country, a really great experience. I, a week was far too short given the travel. I'd never traveled like that before. But so like all of the the positive stereotypes you hear about Japanese people are true. Like they're they're like the stereotypes for a reason. They were incredibly kind and generous and polite and respectful and the cities were not only beautiful architecturally but clean and welcoming and so yeah I couldn't for people that have traveled there I think everyone's like yeah now you get it a little bit this is why we love going there but it was it was eye-opening in a really good way for me and would definitely love to get back to not only Tokyo but to see more of the Japanese country and more Asian countries in general. So yeah, I felt really lucky to have that experience. I was thinking that it would have been nice to have been there this past week because Japan has gone on a nice little run in the World Cup, defeating two uh, European giants to advance to the round of 16. So it would have been fun to to be in the bars for for those scenes. But yeah, I think it was it was a really tremendous trip. Did you take the trains, Brendan? You know that's top of mind for me. So I didn't. It was it was also like a goal of mine. Not only there was there's obviously like kind of the famous bullet train that's in Japan, but even just the regular subways. So I was staying on a US military base with a friend who was playing music, Brian, Brian Scully of Dalton and the Sheriffs, who does our entrance music and would have been on the program last year. So he was over there at the invitation of the U.S. Air Force to play some songs for them. So we were on the we were on the military base over there, and so it wasn't like you could just walk on and off the military base. Understandably, so we had a driver who took us to different places on a bus. So I, I'll, although I didn't get to take the the trains at all, that's that, see that's another reason, Ricky, why I want to go back to to get even a more authentic experience. Definitely. Well, that is that is super cool. But we are uh, we're glad to have you back for sure. Yeah, it's good to be back. And so we do want to talk about the World Cup a little bit, not only the sporting aspect of it, but the political aspect of it, the political ramifications that have come with hosting a World Cup in Qatar. Um we will also talk about protests that have roiled to countries over the past several weeks in Iran and China and see if we can tie them all together. 
Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, we certainly couldn't do an episode uh, in the in the, in the midst of this World Cup and not talk about the World Cup. But I think, you know, you and I have been talking a little bit about some of the um, interesting threads that have sort of been weaving between sport and and politics and society and things like that. So I'm excited to, to dive into this today. Sure. And of course, before we do so, I do want to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by the hard work and craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. If you've been listening, you know they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. It's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. If you're in the mood for a gift this holiday season, maybe check them out. Um, and also, speaking of the holiday season, I feel like in the past week or so, Ricky, I've seen a lot of people out chopping down Christmas trees. And so if if you end up cutting down the wrong tree, what do you say? Oops. <laughs> or you could say, sorry, it was accidental. <laughs> Moving from tree puns to pool puns. All in, all in the the genre. All right. Uh, so when we come back, we will get into some World Cup discussion. All right. Well, it is definitely my favorite uh, sporting event of um, of the calendar year of, of of pretty much you know every four years. Certainly, looking forward to the World Cup. I think before we get into kind of the specifics around hosting it in certain locations and some of the drawbacks to that or, or, you know, broader FIFA uh, sort of (laughs) political entanglements, um, I just want to take a moment to to say that it's been um, a real pleasure having this level of football on the TV every you know, basically every day starting at 5 a.m. going straight through the afternoon. Global productivity, I have to imagine, taking a uh, a bit of a a bit of a bump. I think I wrote or a bump in the wrong direction, I should say. I think I read FIFA estimates by the end of the World Cup, somewhere around five billion people will have tuned in um, at some point or another. Now, of course, unfortunately, soccer does not, uh, lend itself to, um, advertisers in the way, in the way that some, some other sporting events might, but there, there, I think few things that can captivate people across all, um, you know, all walks of life geographies and in, in the way that, um, the beautiful game can. So I've been, uh, I've been really enjoying myself, but maybe I'll kick it to you. What are any, any storylines that you've been following? Um, any particular games that you really enjoyed so far? Well, well, it's certainly been fun to have the United States back in it after we infamously failed to qualify in 2018 for the first time since we kind of been back on the global stage in, in 1994. So the first time in a generation, really, we've grown up as soccer has become a bigger part of American sporting culture and society. And we've been really fortunate to count on the U S being there, not necessarily as one of the favorites, certainly, but at least involved in it. And certainly some of my favorite, like non Boston, maybe even just like favorite sporting memories come from the, the 2010, 2014 world cups when Donovan's goal, Clint Dempsey, 
I, I vaguely remember the U.S. progressing to the quarterfinals in South Korea in, in 2002. And Japan, South Korea and Japan hosted the, that World Cup to, to bring it back to Japan. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was really disappointing not having like a rooting interest previously. And it's nice to have them back. The United States is fielded their youngest team that they ever have, I believe, in the World Cup. They're the second youngest team there. So that's been a lot of fun. I think another cool thing was... So for people unfamiliar, there are currently at least 32 teams that are invited to the World Cup. There's a group stage where every team plays three games and 16 teams advance to what's known as the knockout stage. And for the first time ever, six continents were represented in the final 16 teams. So uh, I believe there were eight European teams, which is traditional, but then two South American teams, two African teams, two Asian teams, Australia and the United States so I just thought that was cool. Like when you're talking about a, a global audience to have six different continents represented, it, it shows in some ways, perhaps the evolution of the game. And while we are very likely to end up with a rather traditional European South American final, I guess we can get into predictions too, if you want, but it's, it's, I think it's really fun for so many different places where, so maybe you're not from Senegal or Morocco, but if you maybe you're rooting for the African Federation, or if you're not from the United States, you're rooting for CONCACAF, or you're you're not from Japan or South Korea, but you're rooting for the Asian teams. And I think that's that's fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are like so many different storylines that you can follow and and find a way to to give yourself a rooting interest in in any of these games. Um, the the format too is, I mean, it's, it's kind of a unique, I think you might see it <clears throat> similarly, like in the Olympics for some events like this, but in general, in sports in general, you don't, you don't get this kind of the group stage, which just has a ton of its own uh, dynamics and like sort of strategy between games and who you play in the first game, really sort of setting you up for how you're thinking about the next two games. Um, the, the U S team, to this time around um i mean i think we've we may have talked about this before of all like the national teams that i follow the u.s men's soccer team besides the fact that i kind of grew up playing soccer is by far my favorite u.s team because like you said it's 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 got this perennial underdog story um the game certainly is growing in popularity here which for me is awesome i was talking with my dad about it how in like 1996 we watched the revolution, the New England revolution, which is like the local MLS team um, in the Boston area, pretty much all the time because you couldn't get any other games on the TV. Now our like our share of MLS watching has gone way down, which is like a, a little bit you know sad for the development of the game here um, for our like domestic league. But it's because we've got the Premier League, we've got we got access to the Bundesliga, Champions League. And so it's like, it's been really, really cool. And also like for my friends who, who, you know, were <laughs> used to poo-poo on soccer as not, not being um, as interesting as sport and, you know, being lame for ending in ties and things like that, really getting into, uh, really getting into the game has been, has been super fun to see. And, and this U.S. team, like you said, really, really young setting us up for uh you know a great 2026 when the world cup will be will be in this direction yeah it's super exciting and you mentioned 
New England Revolution, which who play at Foxborough, play in Foxborough here in Massachusetts, where which is also where the New England Patriots play. And Foxborough is going to be one of the eight U.S. cities that is hosting games here. So yeah, it's it's really exciting, and I'm sure that will be a very those tickets will be very difficult to get, but would certainly be a goal of mine to be able to watch a World Cup match because that might be a, a once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to do it and do it so close, and so. I guess speaking of World Cup locations, while in 2026 it will be hosted in Canada, Mexico, and the United States, this year, and the reason it's being played in November and December, as opposed to the traditional mid-July placement of the of the tournament, is because it's being hosted in Qatar or Qatar. I believe both pronunciations are acceptable. We'll get into why country pronunciations are so important a little bit later in the episode, but it's certainly was an earth-shattering selection as soon as former FIFA president Sepp Blatter pulled that the name out of the envelope. So similar to Olympic cities, cities from all over the world bid on hosting the FIFA World Cup. It is, as Ricky said, perhaps with the Olympics is 1A, 1B. I think you could argue either way in terms of like the biggest sporting events in the world. And so hosting it is a tremendous honor and privilege and brings a lot of not only wealth via tourists, but brings a ton of attention to countries. In recent years, it's been, so for for many years, it was hosted really solely in European or South American countries. Those are really the, the two hearts global hearts of the game. Yeah. In 1994, it was hosted in the United States, which was huge for the United States development of soccer. I mean, recently in 2010, it was hosted in South Africa, which was the first South, uh, African country to host it, which was a big thing. In 2014, it was hosted in Brazil, in 2018 in Russia, and then in 2022 in Qatar. And from, as I said, the, from the moment it was pulled, this was surrounded by controversy. It has since come out, and these were allegations at the time, and so when the facts actually came out, no one was shocked by it, that there was massive corruption around the selection of Qatar as the host. Tons of FIFA officials were took huge bribes and to cast their votes for Qatar to, to be the host. Many of those officials were kicked out of the organization. Some were prosecuted criminally, but everyone knew that this was going to be a controversial selection, and... 12 years later, that has certainly proven to be the case. Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely going into the World Cup, uh, you know, certainly there's a significant amount of of controversy or controversy or or, uh, scandals, maybe not the right word. But similarly to before South Africa in uh, in 2010, um, and, and Brazil in 2014, there was just like a lot of concern that the, you know, the infrastructure wasn't going to be ready, the, there's concerns about um, how sort of the local government was going to handle all these people. And, you know, Qatar, obviously, as a Middle Eastern or Qatar as a Middle Eastern country has, um, you know, yeah, it's a much more sort of socially conservative um against alcohol does not very doesn't have uh really many protections for lgbt lgbtq community like there are like a lot of um concerns and certainly those like heading into the world cup were very very much amplified and yeah i guess i'm curious to your 
like what your thoughts are. I mean, if you had looked at the media coverage probably a week into the World Cup, you would have thought it was like a gonna be a fire festival. Like people were gonna show up and they were gonna get a one piece of cheese and a styrofoam uh in a styrofoam tin and and that was that was gonna be it and it was gonna be mass chaos. And from everything I've seen, like it seems like it's you know that they've been able to to kind of pull this thing off. I'm curious like what your impressions were going into it and how you felt like um the World Cup has been going on. I think we can talk, you know, more broadly around the the corruption aspect as well. Sure. So while largely I think they have pulled it off, it has certainly not been without incident. You alluded to the living accommodations for a lot of the guests. And while in many places there were they were fine, there were people that showed up and their living conditions were like still being built. And they were given like full refunds by FIFA and, and the government, but there was like a little bit of like a firefest feel to it for some people. But th- that wasn't the real concern with with Qatar hosting. Uh, Qatar had to build the infrastructure, so they had to build a number of stadiums in order to accommodate the World Cup. In the building of those stadiums, likely thousands of migrant workers died. So just a little bit of background on Qatar as a country. It's a tiny Middle Eastern country. If you're thinking about it geographically, it's it's tucked in next to Saudi Arabia, um, kind of east of Saudi Arabia, north of Oman, Yemen. And it's a country of, I believe, like 2.6 million people. 300,000 of them are native Qataris and 2.3 million of them are like are immigrants a lot of those immigrants so obviously the immigrant population makes up the vast majority like close to 95 percent of the working population of qatar and migrant workers were brought in from all over asia and north africa to build the infrastructure to build these stadiums Prior to the World Cup, one of the Qatari ministers admitted that there were between 400 and 500 migrant workers that died making that, making these stadiums. The Guardian, which is a publication over in Britain, published a report last year that said over 6,500 migrant workers had died. Some Amnesty International estimates that up to 12,000 migrant workers have died making these stadiums. People have likened it to, to slave labor in some ways that these migrant workers were driven in brutally hot inhumane conditions to make these stadiums so that Qatar could look good on, on the world stage and that they were pretty much sent home in coffins and body bags to their families without much of an explanation for it. So that was probably the, the chief issue. As you alluded to, there are really no LGBTQ rights in Qatar. It's a Islamic country that adheres to strict Sharia law, similar to Saudi Arabia in some ways. There's there's a punishment if, if you're caught engaging in homosexual activity, up to three years in prison for it. And we have seen protests from players and fans about both of those issues. The And the Qatari government and FIFA have pretty much cracked down on those those protests. Uh, there were a number of European countries that 
said that they weren't aware of armbands, just kind of with one love on, on behalf of LGBTQ rights. FIFA pretty much threatened that anybody that wore such armband would receive a yellow card, which is essentially a penalty in soccer. And many of them, many of the teams ultimately did not do so. There have been in, instances reported of protesters or fans not being allowed to wear rainbow colored clothing or bring rainbow colored flags or those type of things, signs supporting LGBTQ rights into the stadiums for that. Uh, there's been protests a little bit over the, the, the deaths of migrant workers and the current president of FIFA, um, kind of Gianni Infantino, he gave really kind of an explosive adversarial press conference to open it in which he went on an hour long monologue and really in a, a remarkable speech. I don't mean remarkable necessarily in a good way, but for a FIFA president to open the world cup by giving an hour long, like harangue in some ways against treatment of Qatar, media treatment of Qatar was, was really interesting. So yeah, I'd be curious to throw it back to you to get your thoughts on any of those things. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's sort of difficult to think about. I mean, I certainly don't want to minimize uh, the experience of migrant workers in Qatar. Um, and I certainly understand how the op, and this is going to, this is going to sound terrible. So you got to bear with me here, but like the, op, the specific optics of like migrant workers coming into a country specifically to build soccer stadiums for uh yeah for a game that again and these stadiums are like not many of them are not even meant to be permanent structures they're like of course a country the size of qatar couldn't possibly need like six or seven full you know soccer stadiums so there is something that immediately when you sort of hear about the story it is um it's it's jarring in ways and, and of course there you know many people were calling for boycotts and um and 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 sort of similar types of protests um against against Qatar against the government and and as you you know as we've talked about against their treatment of the LGBTQ community but also of of migrant workers I think there are a couple of things, um, and, and, and you're right to bring up that Infantino speech. It was, it was crazy. If, if folks haven't heard it, it's kind of worth at least like poking through some of the highlights. But I think in some weird, convoluted sort of way, he had a little bit of a point, which was not that it was wrong for people to point out these types of things but this like specific indictment of Qatar as this kind of like horrible place with this horrible government is interesting specifically coming from like western media which you don't or yeah from western countries which again and we've talked about this before you don't have to go that far back into the history to find so many examples of similar things that we were doing and that the remedy that we're calling for like boycotts and protests and sanctions, like a lot of that stuff obviously never happened to countries like the United States or like England 
or, you know, other parts of Western Europe. And, and I think that that, I think that puts us in an interesting position because there's no, you, you can't ignore what's going on. You have to acknowledge it. And certainly there are, um, there were things that should have been known about the situation in Qatar, what they would have had to do in order to pull this thing off, like use you like relying on migrant labor and that without oversight, like that's exactly how this was going to happen. I think that those sort of safety conditions in the country were probably problematic beforehand. Uh, I don't know if you've seen like the Doha skyline, but it is, you know, it rivals like a New York city type. It's insane what it looks like there. Um, and that's, you know, been specifically enabled by the amount of wealth that they've been able to accumulate for such a small country based on oil exports and, and other things like that. But a lot of those problems predated the world cup. And so, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I don't even mean to say that like you need to take these things with a grain of salt, but I think there is a degree that when, when we go to other parts of the world, Western media has a tendency to highlight things that we find particularly offensive based on our values and customs and, and, and really honestly, like the progress that we have made over the last like 40 or 50 years, but, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure exactly what my, what my point is, but there, there is an aspect of this that like, this is the first time that we've had a world cup in the Arab world in large part, you know, and I'm, (laughs) safety conditions of workers is is an extremely important problem and it's not unique necessarily to Qatar in its development right like we've had those issues here potentially 30 40 50 years ago building in in New York City right like so there is like an idea that okay other countries maybe should have learned from our mistakes but in some ways like we benefited from those mistakes as well in terms of being able to accumulate wealth on the backs of horrible practices and so there's like this weird tension that i i think gets left out when we're looking at what's going on and yet we do have to look at what's going on and we do have to raise these issues I'm just not entirely sure that we're doing it the right way. Or I'm not sure. Maybe if I just think about like how I would wrap this up that like, if our goal, if our belief is that we need to improve these conditions and to like, you know, get people to see the world the way that we are seeing it are, is our like, you know, chastising and and this kind of like moral grandstanding does this achieve like move us towards that goal maybe i'll put leave it with that question sure i i think that's fair and i want to stick with infantino the, the fifa president's speech for a little bit because yeah i don't think i disagree with what he was trying to say but the way he said it I thought was was pretty ridiculous. So he he said, and I, I want to quote him 
directly. He said, we are taught many lessons from Europeans, again, which he is, from the Western world. What we Europeans have been doing for the last 3,000 years, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before we are starting to give moral lessons. He also went on to say that he he understands. He says, quote, today I feel Qatari, today I feel Arab, today I feel African, today I feel gay, today I feel disabled, today I feel a migrant worker. And he goes on to explain that when he was young, he had red hair and freckles, which was why he was he was bullied and discriminated as a kid, which is why he can empathize with those people, which is just a totally ridiculous comment. But to go back to, to the first point, and this is where I do have a problem with at least his phrasing, if not, it, perhaps it was just it was just poor phrasing it, to give him the real benefit of the doubt here, because to say that Europeans and Americans have done bad things is just like a truism. Obviously, we have. But to also then say that we cannot cannot criticize other countries is just completely wrong to me. And so I think that's what that's what really stood out to a lot of people who who have devoted their lives to these causes. Uh, there was the director of Fair Square, which is like a, a human rights organization, said, quote, Infantino's comments were as crass as they were clumsy and suggest that the FIFA president is getting his talking points directly from Qatari authorities, which is certainly a worry in situations like this. And Amnesty's International had said, quote, in brushing aside legitimate human rights criticisms, Gianni Infantino is dismissing the enormous price paid by migrant workers to make his flagship tournament possible, as well as FIFA's responsibility for it. And so that's where I I was bothered. He was pretty much coming out and saying, like, you... You Westerners have no right to criticize the Qatari government because of all of the things that you have done in your past. And that that's just not right to me. You and I have had this conversation about China, and we will continue to have this conversation about China later in the episode. But just because things aren't perfect here, and we know very much that they are not, doesn't mean that we should, shouldn't be allowed or even that we should refrain from legitimate criticisms of injustice that are happening in other countries and when migrant workers are being killed in the hunt or dying in the hundreds of, of thousands in to in service of Qatari reputation or that you know gay people and women can't live full lives in these countries yeah there is i think a, a moral responsibility to call those things out yeah I- Again, I I don't think the highlighting of the situation or really the exposing of the situation, right? Like how many people could even tell you about the country Qatar before this World Cup, right? Is is necessarily the problem when the only solutions are we need to protest this World Cup, we need to sanction them, we need to pull the World Cup out of there and and really all of the solutions when it comes to, and maybe this is potentially a good transition point when it comes to poor treatment by governments tends to be isolate and cut them off. That like, if we can, if we somehow remove them and, 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 you know, there is, I'm not to say there's no logic around that, right? Like we shouldn't necessarily be profiting off of a country that is doing this we shouldn't necessarily be supporting a country to profit off of this but i i just i don't really see any good examples of that type of let's sanction let's isolate let's you know try and uh humiliate almost call evil to an extent 
these other countries. And I think this is this is really the theme for me is that when we think about this type of treatment, which is which is horrible, but you like let's if we think first of like LGBTQ rights, like obviously I'm not even trying to equate what goes on in the United States with with what those sort of the rules in the playing field are in Qatar. But 2004, you had the Defense of Marriage Act, right? Like we don't have to look that far back. I mean, and you can see sort of what's happening here today, right? In our own political system that that we do have many people who would probably prefer a system that was more like Qatar's. Now, obviously, that's not how we feel and how we've been able to create our legal system to offer protections. But it's not it's not as if like they are living in this stone age that we have, you know, centuries ago shaken off. And so the, if the idea is that we want this kind of, it's, it's almost just like, yeah, I mean, even at a personal level or, or country to country, like how do you enact change if you believe in like the moral justification of it? And I think that's, that's the piece that's missing. Like, what are we doing that's going to improve the situation. Wearing the armbands, I don't know if that's, you know, if if that's really like going to move the needle. And yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, so I don't disagree with you. And corruption aside, I have no problem with Qatar hosting the World Cup. If they were hosting it like legitimately, unfortunately, in this case, they were not. But if, if Qatar somehow had gone through the same process that France and Brazil had gone through and got the World Cup. Great. Because I do think a lot of this is about spreading the game and bringing cultures together. And it was a tremendously successful event in South Africa, an historic event that I think was largely, if not overwhelmingly, celebrated across the globe. And it's not the same here, which is unfortunate for a lot of reasons. But I do think the crackdown on protests is frustrating to me because I think one of the ways you could justify having an event like this in a place like Qatar is being like, well, let's show them how other people are able to live. And by not allowing players or fans to protest or not even to protest, but like, I don't know that it's a protest to wear an armband saying like one love or uh, to to bring signs into a stadium or to wear certain things or certain flags. And the, the crackdown on protest is frustrating because again, this is a very Western point of view of like, you want the freedom of expression. You want people to be able to see that, look, look, people are able to live in, in different ways and are, are still fine. Um, and maybe that opens some eyes in the country it, itself. Um, you know, certainly if I was gay, I'm not sure that I would have the courage. I'm not sure being straight, I don't even know I would have the courage to go and try to make a an LGBTQ, a pro-LGBTQ protest in a place like that, just knowing what the potential consequences could be. So I, I do think that's that's tricky. I, I would, and maybe you have other things, just thoughts on that, but I, it has been interesting to me in reflecting on Qatar getting these the World Cup because we talked about this not so long ago with China hosting the Olympics. In Russia, recently, as I said, in 2018, hosted the World Cup in 2016, they hosted the Olympics. It's really interesting to me where these events are happening. And I don't think Qatar is on the level, for me at least, of a China or Russia in terms of 
protesting. There are certainly things about the Qatari government and society that I disagree with, but I think China and, and Russia are far worse in a lot of ways. But you're looking, there's just been such an intersection of sports and politics, it feels like in recent years. And who who's gunning for these events and why are they gunning for them? It's to these countries, as all countries want to do, want to show out and show off on the world stage and be proud of their society and market their society to like the global population. So like that's totally understandable. But when you were having them in these places, and this isn't that different to me than like Saudi Arabia sponsoring the Live Golf Tour, it's it's hard because I I, I I'm trying to check myself here because like I, I understand I have my own biases, but it's hard not to see these countries doing it in a way to cover up a lot of the bad things that are happening in in their country. And so to kind of not put that specifically on Qatar, but to put that on a lot of where the global events are happening recently. I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. And I'm not sure what exactly there is to do about it because like you say, there is, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for engaging with these countries and bringing people to these countries and, and showing other people, showing the people in these places that diversity of cultures and beliefs can live differently than how they live. I think that's a huge positive, but from like a, a motivation and moral standpoint, having so many of our global events happening in countries that have authoritarian regimes, I don't think is great. Yeah, I I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. For, I mean, for whatever corruption and um and brand like for lack of a better word, bribery that led to Qatar getting the World Cup. I think there was something to be said for, you know, this decision was made in 2012, I want to say. So like, you know, about 10 years on from 9-11, when the Arab world, in large part, in the minds of, I mean, especially here in the United States, but even probably in the minds of many in, in Europe was really this kind of like almost this like backwards place. and And of course, you know, in, in terms of how we think about our society today, there there are a lot of things that we wish would have progressed more in those places. But there's something to say for like not just having like the Afghanistan's or like the the uh, you know the whatever the regions of Pakistan that are just getting you know bombed on a regular basis and with people with turbans just like wandering around with machine guns like i think to provide this alternate view of how people live in other parts of the world um through a place like qatar which largely besides i mean some of these very key differences um in terms of uh in terms of sort of freedom and speech or freedom of speech um are largely in line with western culture like it's a pretty as far as the Arab world goes in general, a pretty like advanced uh, place. And I, and I think there is something to be said for one showcasing that to people who might not have ever really understood anything about the Middle East besides the wars that have been waged there over the last 20 years. And to say that I think one of the, tenets of 
the ideas behind globalization are that like the more it's like cultures just don't go in one direction. Like the more you're bringing their culture out and exposing it to other people, the more people within are being exposed to other things in other places. And certainly an event like the world cup where you have people from basically every country in the world showing up there is I think a really important move in terms of, in terms of like how we think about progress and social progress. So like, yes, I mean, I, to- I totally hear you like rewarding, like there's like, I th- and I think for all these things, there's like a carrot and a stick almost like, do we say until you make these reforms, like you're out, you're locked out of these things or is it, and is it, should it be like, here's a morsel and there's more depending on how, you know, how, how you make progress towards some of these initiatives. But, but I mean, again, like even like the protest situation, you don't have to go that far back in the United States where people were making on-field protests about social conditions and basically being told by not everybody, but by a good portion of the country that like what you're doing is horrible and wrong and you shouldn't do it. And like, you know, we should send you to some other part of the world where you can learn what it's like to live without the freedoms that you get here, which, you know, you, you can, you don't, I don't think you have to make that many stretches to understand that there are, that I think people without our lens view these sorts of things quizzically. Like there is like a, sure, of course, if we believe in freedom of speech and we believe in advancing these causes, that FIFA should have figured out a way that if we're going to host the World Cup and somebody wants to put something on their cleats about social justice or about these issues that are important to them, like as a whatever, we work out that that is like, okay, um, before we allow you to host the World Cup. Like, I think that that is something that probably should have been looked at, but I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. Like, I I don't mean to be equating these things, but I do see a lot of parallels, I guess. Well, Ricky, you weren't the only one to see a lot of parallels between what goes on in the United States and criticism of other countries. So when we come back, let's talk about Iran and the United States. So the captain of the United States men's national team is Tyler Adams. And Tyler Adams is a 23-year-old from New York. He started off playing for the New York Red Bulls in the MLS and then moved to a club in Germany and now plays for a club in England. Again, 23 years old, the youngest captain, I believe, in U.S. history or certainly for the last 70 years or so. The United States played Iran in a group stage game last Tuesday and that game was played with heavy political rhetoric ramifications or around it just given the state of Iranian and United States the relationship between the two countries and in an interview before that match the coach of the United States Greg Burrell, Greg Burrell Halter and Captain Tyler Adams were has a number of very not soccer related questions that they weren't being asked about like 
their starting 11 or their tactics or goal scoring threats. They were being asked why Greg Berlhalter didn't tell the United States government to get their fleet of ships out of the Persian Gulf. (laughs) Greg is like, ah, it's not really my role here. Uh, But Tyler Adams, who is wonderfully, he's a a wonderful representative of not only the team, but in the United States in general, in my opinion, particularly for someone so young was asked a question by an Iranian journalist. And these Iranian journalists, to be clear, are like state-sponsored Iranian journalists. They're essentially like mouthpieces of the government. But the Iranian journalists like clearly saw an opportunity here to go on the offensive against the United States in front of the world. And one Iranian journalist began by asking by began his question by asking Tyler Adams or telling Tyler Adams that he was pronouncing Iran wrong. He was previously pronouncing it Iran, which many Americans do. And, you know, not for any particularly malicious reason, but probably just like a lack of knowledge. So criticizing Tyler for not being respectful of the country's name and then asked him what it was like representing a country as a black man, which has such a past and even current history of racism against black people and against marginalization and and certainly worse of black people in this society. And (laughs) a tough question for anybody, but certainly a, a 23-year-old professional athlete to answer. And it's this is a second plug. This is worth his answer is worth watching. It's the whole video is maybe a minute and 30 seconds or so, but a really beautiful answer where he starts by apologizing to the journalist for mispronouncing his name and then saying, like, this is a great opportunity to learn from you know each other because I didn't I just didn't know that. And then, which is a great way to handle what was clearly like antagonistic adversarial beginning to the question and a really humble way to do so. But then explaining that his background, he's he's biracial, he has a, a white mother, and he said he grew up in a white family. And then he says in the past, over the past three, four, five years, he's been fortunate to be able to live abroad and with the national team travel all over the world and said that Places all over the world have have issues. No place is perfect, and the United States is, is certainly far from perfect. But what he looks for is progress, and he feels like the United States is making progress every single day, and he was really proud to represent the country. So we're going to have a larger conversation about what's happening in Iran right now, but felt like a good way to start by just acknowledging Tyler Adams' response to that question. What do you think of all that? Yeah, uh, I mean, as you said, it was the the beginning of the question was clearly the journalist was taking an antagonistic uh position and was you know basically like hoping to get um an angry retort as a as a soundbite and i mean the 23 years old i i do not i mean i know for a fact i would not have put something together so eloquent on the spot clearly like that's not something that you prepare for in a you know before a soccer press conference is uh, how do I how do I justify or like atone for the the sins of my forefathers in some in some respect? And I thought he did just an incredible job, which is like another part of like why I yeah I love the World Cup and I love um, this kind of these like moments and opportunities across cultures that I I just don't know that you can really get in any other way. But he his his answer was like, you know, when you, when you think about like the best things about um, America and the United States, like it, it, it's stories like his and, and uh, that people can 
develop perspectives like his here. And that's almost, you know, I don't want to say it's a unique thing, but it is a function of kind of the exposure that we can have to both the good and the bad um, within, within our country, which not everyone gets that opportunity. And I think that um, definitely needs to be, you know, celebrated within him as a yeah young man, like very, uh, yeah, just, just very, very impressed with how he, um, with how he answered that question. And of course, like, there's like a bit of irony for that question to come from, uh, you know, the, the Iranian journalist, given what's going on, um, in Iran. Um, but I mean, I guess it probably bears noting that it, it it's, it's not, the you know he didn't invent that idea right like that is something that i think black athletes in particular have had to struggle with um in in olympics past um certainly even armed servicemen who went over in world war ii or in vietnam um also had to deal with you know how how they had to uh do what they were doing in the name of freedom only to come back and not have those same rights and privileges. And so there, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, in in a weird way, it turned out to be kind of like a beautiful moment, but that is the idea that like, there are bad things that are, have happened. There are, you know, ongoing issues, but in trying to understand and to recognize them and to expose them and to think about creative ways to address them, we're like getting better. And like, that's what he was proud of, right? The, that we're in progress and we're making progress. Sure. And to talk about the, or the game itself, the United States defeated Iran, a one, nothing margin two good teams that acquitted themselves well, but Iran, the Iranian team has been in the news for a bunch of reasons in recent weeks, So Iran has been rocked by protests, and I want to talk about that in a minute, over the past couple of months. And the Iranian soccer team posed for a picture with their president before leaving for the tournament and caught a lot of backlash for it amongst the the citizenry of Iran, uh, who felt like the president was using the soccer team to kind of bolster his own image and who felt like the, the Iranian soccer players were not standing with the people and posing for a picture with Iran. Obviously this is really an impossible situation for the Iranian soccer players who I imagine largely are just trying to play soccer, but then their first match at the world cup, most of the members of the team refused to sing the Iranian national anthem in largely a a statement of solidarity with the people. And so the protests in Iran started back in September when a woman, a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amiri, died at the hands of security in Iran. She had been uh, arrested, detained by the morality police because she wasn't wearing her hijab correctly. And on September 16th, she died. And this sparked a wave of protests across the country, at first largely around the outrage of her death in then as protests often do, spilling into larger segments of society who are disenchanted with the government for many reasons, for economic reasons, for 
moral reasons for a lack of freedom of expression for the the control that the Iranian government has over media and so like the lack of access that Iranian citizens have to outside sources of news so again for all of these reasons there was a coalescing and the the protests have spread and have been have sustained themselves really up up through today i i know that even just last week there were the protests continued the iranian government has cracked down on those protests where i, I believe uh, over 400 people have been killed including 60 children over 17,000 people have been arrested a number of those people have been given death sentences for their participation in in these protests but Nonetheless, the protests have been shown signs of, of weakening. So what, what have you made of, of these protests in Iran over these past few months? Yeah, it's um, it has been it's obviously something that's just it's hard to I mean, it's not hard to understand. The protests, of course, are not not difficult to understand this sort of sentiment of there's kind of government rep- Oppression in Iran, and that's like sort of well understood and and obvious. I don't. I think I think where I struggle um, is that I don't want to pretend to really understand like what is going on on the ground because a like you said, there's very little freedom of like access for foreign journalists, but b the sort of the news that does trickle out is always kind of affirming what we believe we understand about the state of Iran itself. And I think, I think that that's the hardest part. Um, I saw a lot of parallels between what happened, what's going on there now and what happened here two years ago. Obviously the response is very different. Um, well, the government response is, is is very different in terms of like the ferocity that that these kind of the crackdowns on these protests are uh, that are happening. But, you know, a woman died in police custody on basically a, like a ridiculous charge and a ridiculous rule. But it, and in and oddly enough, in, in many ways, it's very similar to. George Floyd or a couple of other examples of people dying in in police custody here in the United States. And so it sets off these mass protests because there is like this feeling of being fed up and why are why are we dealing, you know, we can't live, we can't express ourselves. And obviously there are a lot of differences between the situation here in the United States and what's going on in Iran. Um I think I think the tricky part for me is that I believe that we should be supporting these protests and I believe that they clearly need to address some of the feelings of their underlying citizens that they are not able to live and express themselves in the way that they want to. Um, On the other hand, or not the other hand, but like a lot of the calls from the West are are h- highly centered around 
regime change and that this existing government has to go. And while I believe that that may be true, I don't know how helpful it is for for Westerners to make those calls. and, And again, it's a very tricky position to be in, but I, I think this is like what I'm struggling with. Like if I truly believe, and I do in the advancement of many of the causes that many of the protesters are pushing for, what is the way to get there in And I think that this is important in like the least violent way possible, because clearly you've highlighted what has been happening is a trope, like, you know, there are atrocities that are being committed. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, like in the, in, in the, in the lives of individual people to be to feel like they, you know, are fearing for their lives to be in these protests. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's a very difficult situation because I, you know, believing in the cause, but like, how do you, how, what is the way to like adequately support um, something like this that's going on? Of course, I, I certainly want to echo you in believing in the cause and, openly that I am personally rooting for a regime change. The regime, in my opinion, of the the Iranian government for which has been in place since the Iranian Revolution in 1979, these last 43 years, has been repressive, regressive, has made Iran really an, an outcast in the global scene, has has done a, a lot of things, including openly with the the great Satan, which is their nickname for the United States and calling for the end of Israel. So has done a lot of things that I just completely disagree with. So yeah, I I do root for regime change in Iran, but I think in this, what you're saying, I think that the only role the United States really has in that is to express support for the protesters, the people on the ground. We've talked about this before, but the United States has a bad history across the globe, but in particular in Iran of meddling in their affairs Prior to the Iranian Revolution, their government was led by a man known as the Shah, who the United States installed and then backed during during his time. So the United States certainly does, which has which brought up a lot of really legitimate anger and hatred towards the United States when they were backing the Shah when he wasn't necessarily being the best for his people. So I, I certainly don't want the United States to be more involved, other than expressing moral support and pro- potentially providing you know any sort of aid to non-governmental organizations, the human rights organizations that, that support democracy and freedom and human rights. But um, yeah, I do think it's, it's interesting to think about the United States role in how we have treated Iran over these past, at least few years, if not a few decades, where we have attempted to isolate Iran as much as possible. And we have extensive sanctions on Iran right now, largely tethered to the, their nuclear program as Iran has been attempting to develop nuclear weapons for a long time. Barack Obama signed a deal which was quite controversial during his time in office. Um, Donald Trump backed out of that deal. There were negotiations between 
the Biden administration and the Iranian government about putting that deal in place. But because that hasn't happened, there are really serious sanctions on Iran. And Ricky, I can kind of see it both ways. In some ways, it appears the sanctions have worked in that the sanctions are designed to increase economic pressure on the Iranian government. And a lot of the energy and the anger towards the Iranian government are economic based is because like because of the effectiveness of u.s and western sanctions the iranian economy has been harmed and if not crippled and so in that sense like people are rising up because the sanctions have been effective on the other hand like those sanctions we've talked about this before but who do the sanctions largely hurt they hurt the people of of the country and more specifically they probably hurt people who are already marginalized in the economic business of that country so probably women and minorities in that country and those sorts of things. I also like the cutting off of Iran from the more global community also limits their access to news, both incoming and outgoing news and allows the government to place more controls over like state run media and to cut off access to uh, the Iranian people's ability to, like I said, you know, send and receive news. So that that part I do think is interesting of like, do do we step up our sanctions on the Iranian government given how they're treating their protesters? Or do we think about starting to loosen those sanctions so that we're able to, the people of Iran are better able to see and receive support? Yeah, I I, I think there was a point in time when, when we were threatening like more sanctions and like basically the government line from Iran was like, go ahead. Like there's nothing really left for you to sanction. So there's no lever left on, on the sort of the stick side of the agreement. I think, I think again, like my, my biggest problem is that one, we've just had no issue with like moral inconsistency when it comes to things like this, the, Iranian regime in place now is obviously very anti-US but you know I mean you sort of pointed out another example of Saudi Arabia right where we had like the crown prince you know effectively have some journalist dismembered in in a consulate and we were just like you know whatever not so bad obviously we know why right like they're on on the flip side of that coin very similar side of like kind of control of media control of you know limitation on women's rights um, or women's freedoms really um but these are things that we sort of shrug off because by and large that government is very yeah either pro-us or at least beneficial to the u.s because of how much money they spend on our weapons. And now, you know, there are some other ventures that are, you know, borderlining joint ventures between the U S and, and so like, I, I think a lot of the, how do we support protest movements and just support rights of people to protest and highlight conditions in their country, I think is very important. And I think to some extent, our corporations do a good are doing a better job now of highlighting areas or, or kind of doing both the carrot and stick and saying, you know, in, in places that we have 
factories, for instance, that we can actually better control some working conditions because we're partnering with these human rights groups that are doing something and certifying whatever. And it's not, it's not a perfect, uh, it's not a perfect solution by any means, but there are ways that we can use economics to kind of both benefit and also like further some of these rights based on our, our values and where we choose to spend our money. The problem is when it's like government policy that is trying to put like i don't have a problem with regime change as long as it's from within right like i think the problem that many people feel or what i feel could happen is that like let's say the thing collapses right like we've seen what happened in iraq we've seen what's going on in afghanistan uh these are very old countries with a lot of different types of baggage but just creating this sort of power vacuum has not brought in those changes so there there is a part that wants to you you to hold sort of the current people in power accountable but they may actually be in a weird way and i'm not saying that this is the solution or the ideal solution but like the those people who could most easily bring about change for most Iranians. And we've seen, I don't know, there was some like announcement today that they're going to try and either reduce or do away with this morality police. Obviously like none of that makes any sense to us. It all sounds insane, but like that, I think there's something to say for like, we have to recognize that when governments collapse, all of the citizens are now in, in a, in like a horrible position because it's very hard for you to act and do things when you don't have a government in the in sort of the background taking care of like a lot of the things that we take for granted and so there's yeah there's there's that piece of me that like says that like i know what these people are doing in many ways is wrong but in the same way that when i knew what was happening in some cities or even some states largely was wrong in the United States. I'm thankful that like we are in a position that nobody else is going to come in here and figure out ways to sanction us and then like cripple our economy and then advocate for a disbandment of like our government. Like, I don't necessarily know that, that that is helpful um, in, in achieving the things that we all agree we want to achieve that's totally fair uh, I, I will still say that i hope that regime change comes from within and does so as, as smoothly as possible i know that is not a realistic outcome but to throw a few more things i talked about the iranian government historically about why i dislike them but even current day they have been providing drones to russia which russia has been using to attract to attack and kill ukrainian citizens and um, also, this report has come out recent weeks of how Iran has a very sophisticated like a global assassination team, and they've ca- carried out a number of hits against um, expats, dissidents who live in Europe and Canada, even the United States. So uh, the Iranian government. Yeah, so does Israel. So does Saudi Arabia. Right. Like so do all these other places that we're not advocating regime change for. That, yeah. that's the pro- like if if morally that this is what we feel is right or wrong we have to figure out some way to be consistent about it across 
both are like, you know, quote unquote allies and, and our foes. Or maybe not. I think. Yeah. All right. All right. I will say that the Iranian, the Iranian people are, as far as I like my limited knowledge of them are, are wonderful people. And if anybody goes and looks, obviously this generation, we've all grown up with Iran being under this theocracy, this uh, religious Islamic really dictatorship. Uh, but if anybody goes back and looks at Iran, like pre-revolution, you will see a city that's as modern as any Western city where they had terrific universities. It was Iran is has incredible history. Like we talked about Ricky with Iraq too. You know, this is in some ways it's like the the center of like the the cradle of civilization, not only like historically, but like of of knowledge. Like they they had some of the greatest universities in the world up through the mid twentieth um, century, and so it's it's certainly like possible, and you know, obviously this is a very Western biased opinion, but to, for them to get back to something like that and to try to get Iran to be like a, a force for for good in the world, and so um, that's yeah, I guess I just try to like, and I know you do too, but just stand with the Iranian people and, and hope that things get better for them. Yeah, I think I think that that's like an that's absolutely the right point to make, and I think that that is difficult. But it's true, I think, across the board, like even, you know, we look at what's happening in Russia and it's very easy to just start to feel like, you know, this is an evil regime. Obviously, we, you know, we can look at Putin and and say what we want to about him, but it's hard being where we are and not knowing the, knowing people there, not to like, without trying to sort of ascribe what he's doing also to the rest of the people in that area. And, and probably you can, I mean, definitely you can say the same thing about China, right? Like we all here in the United States pride ourselves on our individualism, but that's not unique to us. There are like, this is true across the board, but it's very hard to know that or to understand that because we don't know well, one, we don't know people, but two people in these places, but two, like it's very hard to kind of get, their sentiment out. And I think one of the cool things about these protests is that it is it there is that kind of kinship there because we do have that history of of protesting here. And obviously they're not um it's it's not the same, but there there is that kind of idea that that people are there's like a universal value system around how people want to live and, and the social contracts they want to make with their governments. Absolutely. And speaking of protests and speaking of China, when we come back, we will talk about protests in China. So in the last week, massive protests have also broken out across China. And it is interesting in some ways where China and Iran are two of the U.S.'s global rivals, where and then there are protests happening in these countries simultaneously in some ways, it's if you're the United States government, you can look at this and sit back and be like, well, this is really good for us. And in other ways, it's a very fraught time in our relationships with both those countries. Not only like we were talking about is how do what is how do we deal with these? You know, what is the U.S. role in supporting the protesters if we are in those two countries, particularly with China, which is like that. I've always referred to them as like our frenemy, which we 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 want to criticize them and have them do better with a lot of their human rights 
abuses, but also we acknowledge that we have a reciprocal economic relationship that we don't want to anger them too much. So it's in that it's fraught. And anytime you have governments that are getting pushed and potentially backed into corners, like we talked about with Putin and Russia, there there exists the potential for more violence, whether internally or externally. So to get into the protests in China, the original source of the protest, there was a, a deadly fire in a in the, the capital city, Urumqi, of uh, pronunciation is probably wrong in that, which is the capital of Xinjiang, China. Xinjiang, China, Ricky, we have talked about this this place on our podcast before, is a place with a lot of, with a heavy Muslim Uyghur population. So a place where Chinese government, I was going to say allegedly, but I think it's been factually proven that the, the Chinese government has engaged in some really terrible human rights abuses against the Muslim population in the, the northwest of China. But anyway, last week, there was a fire in China that killed 10 people, including a, a child. And the protests erupted locally around that because one of the reasons that these people died were because of China's COVID policies, which prevented the firefighters from getting close enough to the apartment to put out the flames in time. And we've talked about this extensively. I, I certainly, I did think of you because China had really like the diametrically opposite approach to COVID that the United States did, where the United States largely like did not have a organized systemic plan. And what happened, a million people died. And China went the exact opposite way. They have what's known as a zero COVID policy, where like if, a COVID case is found, everyone is locked down. To its credit, and this is where I want to get your reaction, because you are really an enormous proponent in some ways of, of China's policy and the success of it. This policy likely saved millions of lives. I don't think that's an exaggeration. We've had a million people die here in the United States. Chinese population is three times the United States. And China's, they've only reported several thousand deaths likely to be greater than that. But still, no matter how you slice it, like it's been an enormous success in saving lives for COVID. What it's led to, though, is essentially three years of absolute lockdowns across China. And it has led to deaths. There have been proven examples of people literally being like welded into their apartments and people that are these mandatory quarantine centers that people are forced into. Uh, Just last month, there was a bus crash and 27 people died in China because those people were being forcibly transported to a quarantine place. Tragically, the bus kind of crashed. Those 27 people died. So you have these escalating examples of, of people dying. And to tie it back to the World Cup, I don't know if you saw this, Ricky. Again, it was in the Guardian. Guardian getting double shouts out and shoutouts on, on this program. But reported that a lot of people in China were watching the World Cup and were like shocked that people were just like together and didn't have masks on. They like they because Obviously, China, like Iran, their government strictly controls and censors the media that is allowed into the country. And so a lot of people, when the World Cup was on, were shocked to see that like not other other countries didn't have zero COVID policy. People were allowed to be out together. And so what China started doing is censoring their broadcasts and not showing pictures of the crowd because they didn't want too many people to see this, just to tie it all together. But anyway, what's been different, protests in China actually happen more frequently than I think I or other people would think, but largely these protests are localized and are just in response to like specific incidents, unfortunately, like this tragedy that happened. But these protests have really, again, spread throughout the country. You've seen them in Beijing and Shanghai, which is different. You don't, you don't often see them in these cities where the government has 
strict control of of really all aspects of society. And the protests have been against the zero COVID policy for sure. But I think the enduring symbol for me has been a lot of younger people, students out holding up blank pieces of white paper. I don't know if you've seen pictures of that, but it was, it was striking to me. And I was like, I didn't understand it, but apparently it means like no more censorship. So they've been out arguing for, for freedom of speech. And um, there was a student in uh, at Tsinghua University in Beijing. She was holding up a blank piece of paper and she was leading the chance of democracy, rule of law, freedom of expression. And she said, if we're being afraid, if we don't, if we're being arrested, if we don't speak, I believe people will be disappointed as, as a student, I will regret this my whole life. And then in Chengdu, which is a city in the Southwest video show, people shouting like, we don't want lifelong rulers. China doesn't need an emperor. This is in response to last week, Xi Jinping, who was the leader of China, was reelected, quote unquote, for the third time as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, which is historic because up until 2018, Leaders can only be elected to two terms, uh, like leadership positions. She led the link, led the the campaign to abolish those term restrictions, and he's essentially seen as like a ruler for life. So, in the midst of all of these things that are happening in China, protests against the the leadership, against the censorship, against the zero COVID policy, these protests have broken out and pre- present a really a really interesting situation for the United States, but United States aside, Ricky, I'd be curious as what you thought of the the protests in general. Yeah, I mean, certainly not surprising given how, um, or at least like from our perspectives, how crazy the the zero COVID policy is, um, especially at this juncture, close to three years on from the onset of. Um, uh, of really sort of the global COVID-19 sort of pandemic. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny you like that, I, that I was a big proponent of the policy. I think what I was admiring was kind of the cohesion that they were able to pull together in terms of how they could create some type of system to, to tackle or to address the issue. And then for the most part, at least in the beginning, people were buying into it. Now, of course, you're sort of seeing like there is a limit to all that. And I think one of the things that I read, which was really interesting, is that people in... So, I mean, the protest movement seems to be picking up steam, but obviously China has over a billion people. And so it it is difficult. Like you could have like... 100, 200 million people out there protesting and not necessarily representative of how everybody views the the government or even like the majority of people, right? So a ter- terrible example, but I guess what I mean to say is that in China, people have a different relationship with the government than we do here. They expect different things of it and they understand differently that like there is a degree to which they don't have as much freedom, but on the other side that there's maybe a little bit more stability, maybe a little bit more guarantees around certain things, right? Like huge, huge oversimplification. But to say that, that things that would not have clearly did not fly here from day one, people were probably to varying extents okay with 
for some time. But now we're at this like juncture where Xi Jinping basically stakes his entire reputation on this ability to do this zero COVID. And now maybe like they've reached a point where they should probably think about different tactics for dealing with this, but he can't because he's like, he's a zero COVID guy, but now people are getting fed up. So yeah, it's, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if things get more hectic uh, before, before they calm down. It's um, it's yeah. Uh, but also not, yeah, not surprising that, that people are, are out there. Um yeah, I mean, it's it's insane to me that like for three years, you know, how frustrated we were for really three months when things were locked down and how, how restless we were. This three years is almost unimaginable to me to be locked down and so totally understandable for the Chinese people. It's a really good point you make about how he staked his reputation and the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party on this because they were certainly in that first year. They were able to point to all the rising deaths in the United States in particular, but in a lot of Western countries and be like, Look how much better our government is. This is what we've been telling you. Uh, but when you have, for better or for worse, large, the Western world has largely been able to get back to living normal lives. And a lot of credit goes to like the science and the vaccines that a lot of people have taken, which has allowed that to happen. But he's been backed into a corner a little bit. And because I was reading a little bit of just about just like scientifically what the situation is, is because they've locked everyone down is that there's almost no natural immunity in China. And they've also refused any Western vaccines. So they've only had domestic vaccines, which are different. They're not like the RNA vaccines that that we have, which again, we see are certainly not perfect in any way, but at least they've, we know that they've limited the deaths and hospitalizations for a lot of people, particularly a lot of people, elderly people and um, people with other conditions and China just doesn't have any of that. So if China does give into these protests at all and start like lessening, weakening their COVID measures, people are going to get sick. And unfortunately people are going to die. And like that's, but th- because they've gone, they've committed so fully to the zero COVID policy, they almost have nowhere else to go. Like it's, it it's a brutal situation for the Chinese government, who I don't feel badly for at all, but also it's a really brutal situation for the Chinese people who, if it, their their situation is either like they, you know, they get their freedom, but they're probably going to have like huge waves. Like even with these protests, the last four days, they've had a record number of COVID cases. And these, like you say, are still very limited in scope, given the size of the Chinese population. So it, it's a it's a dangerous place for the Chinese government to be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and and throw on top of it, just having so many people, the obviously they've been able to grow their economic might as a country through developing a huge manufacturing sector that exports a ton of stuff, right? But that relies on these massive warehouses and factories that need to be able to get people in there. And then, of course, those people need to be able to get to work in order to make money and Right now, you're I mean, I think it's been ongoing, but perhaps now coming to a head where, you know, this is a a country that kind of relies on that human interaction to build or, or to to sustain its people. And there are a lot of people who are, you know, particularly like close to the 
borderline and need to be able to make money in order to feed their families and that kind of stuff. Like, so yeah, it, it's definitely a tenuous situation. Um, and, and you're right. I don't know really what, what, what the right move is given what you said and the lack of, I mean, you would think maybe we, it's an opportunity for us to, to figure out, like, can we get some concessions and like, let's, let's get these vaccines over there. Yeah. But they don't want them. It's to your point though. Like he staked his on, like, we don't need the Western approach. Like we can do this the Chinese way. And unfortunately, like this is where like the ego of someone that is essentially a dictator in that country is dangerous. Yeah. 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 I, again, similar to what I said about the Iranian people, certainly stand with the Chinese people. This certainly seems like just like in Iran, it could go one of two ways where the Chinese people get a little, get some concessions and maybe they, they are able to responsibly relax some of these zero COVID policies to get people out there in a, in a safe way. And that's certainly what we hope for. Certainly the other possibility is you have a repeat of 1989 where the protests continue to grow and China's response is a, a military crackdown. And that would obviously be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we started in a happy place with, <laughs> with some soccer, but uh such is the way of the world, I suppose. We we end on a slightly sadder note. But yeah. And again, good to be back with you. It's been a couple of weeks, so we, we certainly had a lot we wanted to say to each other. But nice talking to you again, as always. All right, man. We'll talk That's to you. Cool. Yeah. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands And folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideals Friends made over arguments And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, 
Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find it Change the lies and Folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made on arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lies had Folks are different mind Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz